Hello, I'm Rahul Farawi, co-host of Pull Quotes. And I'm Gabe Oatley, the other half of Pull Quotes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of Canada's top long-form stories. All right, so Rahaf, you spoke with our guests this week. Who did you chat with? Yeah, so I spoke with Nicholas Hume Brown, who is the senior editor at The Local, and he's published features with Toronto Live, Hazlitt, and Canadian Business. Sweet. And why did you want to chat with Nick this week? Yeah, so I wanted to talk to him about a story he published in The Walrus called uh, The Shadowy Business of International Education. Hmm. And it's a story about uh, international students coming to Canada. And Nick really shows that for a lot of these students, it's mostly about becoming Canadian, which is never Mm -hmm. really guaranteed. And uh, so these students end up being really vulnerable to exploitation. Hmm. Sounds like such an important story. And I heard a lot of buzz about this piece when it was published. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the things that really surprised you about the conversation that you had with Nick? Yeah, so he talks about how his story just kept shifting. And initially, it was going to be about students in China. And then he spoke to students coming from India. And it was interesting to see how he just kept following the narrative um, and how he found that story that was most important to tell Hmm. um and just about how he got so much detailed scene material uh like for about a small village in india over zoom and just Hmm. overall um he was a really thoughtful guy and it was a it was a great chat amazing uh sweet okay i can't wait to listen to it yeah let's uh let's let's play it Hi, Nick. Hi, Raf. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast, so thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. We're here to talk about your piece that you recently published in The Walrus a few months ago, and it's headlined The Shadowy Business of International Education. So to start, could you give us a little summary and tell us what is the shadowy business of international education? Yeah, so the, the piece is about um, international students going to post-secondary school mm-hmm. in Canada, and, and, and over the last decade or so, that number has grown incredibly it's 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 tripled um so now 40 percent of of you know um of funding comes from these international students and i think not enough attention has been paid to who these kids are um why they're coming here um Mm -hmm. and and kind of the how vulnerable they are and sort of you know the the fact that these post-secondary institutions are are becoming completely dependent on these students um and, and they're coming here for reasons that that maybe aren't exactly what you expect, uh, and they're and they're kind of pretty vulnerable once they arrive. Yeah. So um, I'm just curious how you came about the story, and like how, what inspired you to write a feature about it. Yeah, this story was the <laughs> the, the longest story I've ever worked on. It had a oh, lot wow. of different iterations. It took years and years. But um, I think back in 2017, um, people have been writing about international education for mm-hmm. for a while, about international students. Um, and I was re- I read a, a newspaper article about a actually a Chinese student in a Scarborough kind of rooming house who had who had died in a fire. Um, and I was just thinking about how how a student from China ends up in, in sort of a basement in, in Scarborough going to a college here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was interested. I, I knew that international education was huge was was bringing in tons of money and was was transforming post secondary education in the country. But I think I wanted to figure out exactly. Um, 
who was profiting along the way and, and, and what that meant. Um, so at the time, I, you know, I, I thought this was, was going to be a story about Chinese students primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, China was the, the primary source of the, or the biggest, the biggest source of international students to, to Canada. Um, and over the years that changed dramatically, like, um, India has become the, you know, 34% of, of, of students come from India at this point. Um, and they're increasingly going to community colleges rather than, than universities. So the whole landscape has sort of changed in the meantime. Um, the pandemic mm-hmm. happened. It, it took, yeah. it took years and years. The story kept shifting at a certain point I had, uh, a reporting trip that I was planning in early February 2020 to India, and it, you know, luckily oh. I did I did not go. But um, <laughs> and in the end, this, this ended up being one of these stories that took place. Um, you know, most of it was reported uh, from my room over Zoom um, over over a number of, of years. So it was really a it was really a long, a long story. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting that you said it took years. So I'm kind of curious, at what stage did you decide to pitch it to the walrus? Um, I, I pitched it pretty early, and it was an mm. entirely different story. Again, it was focused on China. I was thinking about going to China for an education fair. Um, I was still interested in the sort of uh, part. A lot of the story is about these these agents who, mm. um, who were able to bring students from their home countries to Canada. Uh, so that was a sort of business side of the story I was mm. interested in for a long time. Um, but yeah, I pitched them then, and it shifted completely over a long time um and you know i'm I'm thankful that my editor was was patient and (laughs) was able to to see that the story um you know needs to go in different directions yeah and you mentioned a lot of it was on zoom and you had planned this trip to india and like reading it the opening scene of the piece uh describing krishan deep's hometown it was very vivid and very specific and like you wrote about the mud and the growing layers of asphalt. And I just felt like I could picture it all so perfectly. I'm kind of curious how you managed to get all that scene material about like a small village in India, especially during a pandemic. Like what kind of questions were you asking to get such rich material? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with any story like this, it, mm-hmm. it, especially when you're reporting from a great distance like over the over the phone it's it's fully dependent on finding um subjects who mm-hmm. who are you know willing to speak i mean the, one of the biggest problems with this story was finding the person who would be at the center of it and mm-hmm. you know i interviewed dozens of international students um and you're looking for someone that has uh, an experience that that is representative mm-hmm. and an experience that also is dramatic and you're also looking for someone that can um share that experience in yeah. a way that feels rich and cushion deep was just so patient with me, such a good mm-hmm. talker. You know, he was the one who was who was describing these things, and they were so vivid. Um, yeah. And in a piece like this, you go back over and over again. And as a journalist, you kind of, um, you know, the thing I say is like, I'm going to ask you a bunch of detailed, mm-hmm. dumb questions. Just tell me if they're, you know, you probably won't remember what color your yeah. you know, your room was or whatever. But you know, I'm I'm trying to catch as much of those details as possible. And once I get those details from someone, I'm. Uh, I was asking for photos of mm-hmm. any photos that he had of his house. I was on Google Maps and Google Street View trying to kind of get images of, of the village. Um, mm-hmm. You're doing sort of some secondary research to, to flesh all of that out um, and then trying to make the scene as, as vivid as possible. But but it starts with the, uh, with the subject. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Like even you wrote um, at 18, Krishan Deep was a baby faced teenager with big brown eyes and a thoughtful earnest way of expressing himself I was kind of curious as like do you ask for a picture and then you come up with that or is that something like you go 
oh, how would you describe your face as a teenager? Is it? I know. I was. Yeah. It was from a picture. He's. <laughs> it's a picture. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 how we looked. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And how did you manage to find all these international students to interview? And like, how did you know that Kushandeep was like your your guy, and that was the main story you wanted to tell? Yeah. It 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 was a long long process. Mm-hmm. Um. And again, like a lot of these students, so they arrive and they're incredibly vulnerable, right? Like mm-hmm. they um. They have specific work visas they're trying to work towards. They're desperate to get um, permanent residency here. So they're some of the most vulnerable people that you can interview. They don't really understand the, the you know, necessarily the the, the rules that, that exist yeah. here. So finding people who want to talk about um, labor exploitation and so on was difficult. Um, I, I, I used a number of strategies. I, like, joined a whole bunch of, like, WhatsApp groups for international students and Facebook groups. Um, and kind of spoke to people through that. I talked to a number of immigration lawyers and asked if they had uh, clients who might want to speak. And I spoke to some advocacy groups. Um, there's One Voice out on the West Coast. Um, it's a Punjabi health uh, services, I believe it's called here, the GTA. Um, and sort of through them, you, you, I asked if they had any, any people that, that might be willing to speak. Um, so yeah, so from that, I ended up speaking to a whole bunch of people. And you, to begin with, you're, you're trying to find out like what the story is. So you mm-hmm. hear from advocacy groups, like this is what's happening with international students. They are being um, exploited by education agents. Once they arrive here, they're often being exploited by, by their jobs. Um, and you kind of want to have that confirmed with as, by as many individuals as possible. So you're kind of getting a sense of the landscape and what the story is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're thinking about who to put at the center of it. And I, I spoke to Christian Deep fairly early in my reporting, actually. Then um, I wasn't sure if he was the exact right person to put mm-hmm. at the center of it or not. There were a number of different people who could have been, who could have been there, or it could have been a piece that told multiple stories and, and thread them through. Um, but as reporting went on, it, it felt like his story contained um, a whole bunch of, of what I thought were some of the biggest issues here. It didn't contain everything, right? So yeah. it, it, it's not um, the perfect the perfect representation of all the issues I see, but it had enough of it, and he was uh, a compelling character that he made sense at the at the center of everything. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one of the other voices that you spoke to was Kamal, a funeral home owner. Yeah. And he talked about the trend he was noticing with the growing number of uh, young students who were showing up at his funeral homes. So that part was really hard to read, but it was such a strong voice to include. Uh, could you talk about your decision to speak to him uh, and how did you decide that he would be a good voice to include? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I was trying to be very delicate around that mm-hmm. section. So he's he's a funeral home owner who um, I had heard through um, a different a different subject or a different source um, that there was this funeral home owner who had, who had seen these things. Um, so I reached out mm-hmm. to him and, and he, you know, he kind of says that over the last few years, he's seen more and more international students end up, um, you know, end up dead, I guess. He, yeah. he talks about them taking their own lives, um, about suicide. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that was a very powerful voice to include. I wanted to be very careful about um, how I was reporting that and representing that. But um, I think including that perspective was, was sort of the most, um, you know, a lot of a lot of bad things can happen when you bring... 18-year-olds who have never left their village yeah. and get put them in huge amounts of debt and send them to a, a college across the world. Um, and this is, you know, 
this represents the, the very worst thing that can happen. Um, so I think it was important to, to include that. Yeah, and like as a reader, I got really emotional when you touched on like sensitive subjects like suicide and sexual exploitation. And I'm, I'm wondering how it was like uh, during the reporting process while touching on these uh, sensitive subjects and hearing these stories. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when I'm interviewing people and they're and they're they're talking about subjects like that, I think, um, yeah, I don't have any any <laughs> tricks or anything other than just listening and and kind of trying to be as sensitive as possible, but also but also professional. Like, I think I think it's important not to sort of um, pretend you're someone's best friend when you are trying to you know to to make sure, sure that they yeah. understand that this is a is an interview and and you know. Um, but I, but I was, yeah, I was conscious of, of, of thinking about how to balance um, how much of that stuff to include. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there was, there was stuff about sexual exploitation that could have been more prominent, I guess, but it, it didn't feel yeah. appropriate. You want to you choose things that are, um, you know, that, that show the gravity of the situation, but it's mm-hmm. a fine line between feeling a little bit exploitative or, or, or yeah. showing things that are not necessarily representative of what everyone's experiencing so I think I think it was it was about uh, about towing that line Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, and you included a lot of uh, data from like the number of international students uh, the percentages at certain schools tuition numbers I'm curious was that data easy to access or was it difficult to kind of gather those numbers um it was difficult yeah a lot of a lot of those numbers are not like the, the biggest number that's hard to find is mm-hmm. how many of these international students actually um, are able to become permanent residents. Because mm-hmm. you know, in the in the story, that's my, what I'm saying is that the people who come here, that's that's what they're looking for. They're not necessarily looking for a two-year degree from Conestoga College or whatever. They yeah. they want they want to be Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, finding how many of those people are successful is not something that the government reveals. So that's that was yeah. a very difficult thing. And you're looking for different ways to to tell that. Uh, and in terms of growth, that at the colleges themselves, um, that was a matter of like digging through a whole bunch of annual reports um, and trying to figure, you know, trying to look at, at the numbers. Like they're not necessarily sharing that yeah. the number of international students has increased twelvefold in the last mm-hmm. five years. Um, but you can you can dig into into older reports. So it's yeah, it was it was a matter of again like yeah. <laughs> trying to trying to show the numbers but not overwhelm mm-hmm. readers with millions mm-hmm. of statistics. Yeah, so. definitely. Uh, and and while reading the piece, uh, it felt like the problem just kept growing and growing. And you even talked about the situation during the pandemic. So I'm curious as to like when you knew to stop. At what point did you feel like uh, you spoke to enough people, you gathered enough information uh, to tell the story? Yeah, well, that was obviously kind of a disaster for this <laughs> one because it took years, right? And I think the pandemic in particular, I, I was ready to dive in before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Then the pandemic threw international education completely upside down, right? So yeah. for a while, I thought the story is going to just be about um, the pandemic. And then, you know, a few months or maybe even a year into the pandemic, I thought, no, this this the story, it's, it's mm-hmm. about the longer arc here. The pandemic is part of it, but... Um, let, let's tell the story of what's been happening over you know a decade rather than over mm-hmm. the last year. Um, and in terms of when you know the story's done, I think someone, you know, it was a stray Twitter thread. I can't remember who to credit, <laughs> but someone was talking about um, one, once you realize you're 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 probably okay to start writing that you've got the story is when you just keep hearing the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's 
definitely what happened here. You know, I'm speaking to my 15th student and they're saying the same thing. I'm speaking to, mm -hmm. you know, another immigration lawyer and they're telling me the same issues. I'm speaking to um, an advocate from the West Coast or from the East Coast and they're telling me the same thing. So then you begin to feel some confidence that, yeah, this mm -hmm. is the story. I've got it right. Um, I'm not learning a whole lot more from the people I'm speaking to. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm ready to kind of get this down. And, and even then, like, I'm, I'm never someone who... Um, does all my reporting and then does all my writing. I'm constantly making calls, trying to fill stuff in mm -hmm. as, I'm, as I'm writing something. Interesting. Um, if you did manage to go to India, like, what do you think would have changed in your story? Um, I mean, I think, I think being able to get even more... So, so the, the, the way my story is constructed mm -hmm. is it's kind of all... Um, constructed backwards right mm -hmm. like it's to it's told from beginning to end but yeah. I'm, I'm getting that beginning by talking to um to Christian Deep years later um and I think may maybe the, the piece would have been the same but I think the idea would have been to follow one of these students um from uh, from their home you know mm -hmm. to Canada and see and see what happens there um I think I would have gotten as well been able to speak to agents on the ground there and get a sense of them They're, we don't have that character in the piece mm -hmm. um people who are kind of you know what what those agencies look like what what that means in a in a small town mm -hmm. in Punjab. um but to be honest i'm 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 happy with how a lot of that uh, reporting worked out just mm -hmm. going over the phone um uh, you know i'm happy with that section of of the story so um i'm sure i'm sure it would have been different in ways that i can't even you know think about because i didn't i didn't get to do yeah. that reporting but uh but yeah yeah, I wanted to talk about the last section of the piece where you wrote, it was an appealing vision, a 21st century version of the immigrant dream. It's the kind of story that travels carrying the promise of a better future. It's something you could sell on a billboard. Um, I'm curious how you came up with that and why you chose to end your piece with it. Um, you know, I think a lot of that was working with my editor, mm -hmm. Danny Viola at The Walrus. Um, we were trying to find the right ending and I think I think this this ending which feels um a little ambiguous it's you know it's it's not a it's not a brutal ending for Kushin Deep mm -hmm. it's it's um you know there's some promise there um and I think if you zoomed out and you said hey here's this guy he came to Canada now he's got this good job he's moved he's you know that's that's mm -hmm. a story that's that's appealing um I think the whole the whole work of the piece is to kind of complicate that narrative and to you know think about that the, what they're selling on billboards isn't isn't the reality and that you know Cushion Deep was lucky but there's a whole lot of people who are who are less lucky so I think you know ending it on that slightly um <laughs> ironic yeah. uh, kind of note I think I think was appropriate mm -hmm. for the piece and I and I you know just like a a call back as well it's just it's, it feels satisfying in a certain way yeah um, yeah yeah and you mentioned working with your editor so i've heard that like the editing and fact checking process at the walrus is like pretty intense uh could you talk a little bit about that process and like how it was like to fact check your piece yeah i i mean i i was a fact checker at the walrus mm -hmm. years and years and years ago i was an intern you know when i when i first graduated from university mm -hmm. and started doing this so I um appreciate yeah. what they do and <laughs> and honestly as a as a writer it's like the greatest um comfort to me that yeah. um 
that some smart person is going to be going over my piece and, and making sure that every inch of it is is factual and correct. Like that's that's a huge relief, you know. It's like working with a with a really strong net underneath you. Um, so it's something I appreciate about magazines yeah. like The Walrus or Toronto Life or what have you. Um, fact checking this, I think, was very difficult. I, I I think I think the fact checker did a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to you know as I'm writing, I'm trying to keep keep notes as best as I can, mm -hmm. footnotes about where everything's coming from to account for each each detail. Um, in terms of the editing process, um, I had a great time editing this with my with with Danny. He's a he's a smart editor. Um, and I think in this piece, like I'd spent so long with it and, and really worked on it that um, the structure in the end didn't require like a, a full reconstruction which can sometimes happen with a feature at the walrus or, or any place um, where you have to kind of bring things tear things apart to build them back together like here it was pretty straightforward I think my vision of the piece from the first draft um, ended up being pretty similar to how it was at the end and that's not always the case but I think in this case it was just something that uh, that, that worked okay um, before we end I kind of just want to ask you a more broad career question uh, so I'm curious to learn a bit more about your path to building a career in magazine feature writing in Canada. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, people do it in all sorts of different ways, mm -hmm. right? But I think, um, I mean, my particular path, I, I graduated from McGill. I didn't have any journalism school experience, and I was writing these sort of uh, culture essays, I guess is what you'd call them. I was writing, you know, think pieces about... Uh, about films and books and, and culture and stuff that felt familiar to me as an English major where mm -hmm. I didn't have to interview a lot of people, which seems scary, right? <laughs> um, and at a certain point, I realized that the kind of stuff that I liked reading the most, like um, by Susan Orlean or Michael Lewis or whatever, were with these sort of long-form features, and that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. Um, and I started pitching them and trying to figure out how to do it. I pitched Toronto Life a story about... Um, the so-called ethnic press, um, which ended up being a, a really complicated feature about Chinese language newspapers in, in Toronto. Um, and I think, I mean, yeah, I, I do think that pitching is the only real way to, to mm -hmm. do it. Is, and that's, you know, that's like a specific skill, but it's also, um, you know, now, I'm, now I've been a feature writer for a long time. I've also been a feature editor. Um, and I think pitching is, is very much like the same skill, which is which is like understanding what makes a good magazine article, um, and I think that carries over between editing and writing and, and, and pitching itself, and it just comes from reading a whole bunch of magazine articles and thinking about um, what the elements are and kind of really, um, yeah, honing your your instincts for, for for what what makes what makes that work. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I I to begin with, I just concentrated on writing a few really good features mm -hmm. not not doing a million pieces and you know that comes with like I don't know I a certain amount of privilege I was mm -hmm. I didn't have a giant student loan I was living in a big apartment with a million artists mm -hmm. I was living like a student for like years and could mm -hmm. afford to make very little money um so that's a different path mm -hmm. for for everyone but um yeah I think building a portfolio was the most important thing and I think that's that I mean I encourage people to do that if they if possible to you know to take time out of doing whatever daily hits you need to do or the short pieces and, and kind of, you know, if you can invest the time to tell one really good feature um, and from there, you know, things, things begin to open up. People, people are always looking for people that can, that can really write a smart 
good well-reported feature. I don't think that's, I don't think they're, um, yeah, I, I think that's a skill that, that's still important. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a great way to kind of end off this, uh, this chat. Um, thank you for being here. And it was really great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for speaking with me. And that's the end of the second episode of our season. Pull Quotes is published by the Review of Journalism at X University. Our show hosts are Gabe Oatley and me, Rahaf Farawi. Our podcast team also includes Andrew Oliphant and Annika Foreman. Technical and audio support is provided by Angela Glover and web support by Lindsay Hanna. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata, and the music is by Harrison Ammer. Join us in about 10 days for the next episode. <laughs>